0: We're continuing our series in Mark's Gospel, uh, Mark chapter 14, and we're in verses 26 to 42, Mark chapter 14, verses 26 to 42. I was sharing with the events team earlier that I've been really, the last few weeks I've been really enjoying um, studying each of the passages uh, that I preached from on previous Sundays. Um, this week was no different, I really enjoyed studying today's passage. I hope you enjoyed the sermon as well. Uh, But Mark chapter 14, verses 26 to 42. The word of God reads, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John but what you will, and he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this is one of the most weighty passages in the whole of Mark's Gospel, weighty because of what's taking place, weighty because of what's at stake. Father, as we examine this passage of Jesus on his knees and then prostrate before the Father, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, help us to understand why this is such a weighty passage. What is taking place? what it means for us today and how it should shape the way we pray and the way we approach our secret prayer life. Lord, I pray that we would be humble in the way we approach this passage and allow our hearts and souls to be malleable under the control of the Holy Spirit. May you watch over the words of my mouth. May you watch over the meditations of our heart. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, Last week, we fleshed out a passage that focused on the Passover meal, communion. Uh, Coincidentally, on the Sunday that we do communion, uh, and we saw that every aspect of the Passover meal had a symbolic significance, like each element of the feast. You know, there were four cups of wine, the dip the bread, everything had a symbolic meaning. Now in today's passage, the meal has finished and they sing their conclusion, uh, their concluding hymn together. And it's presumably again from Psalm 113 to 118, which I explained was traditionally sung at Passover. The Jews called it the Hallel. And it's at this point that they take a short stroll. They were in Jerusalem in the upper room of some person's home and they exit out of Jerusalem and they take a short stroll to the Mount of Olives, which if you look at your New Testament maps, it's only a few minutes away from Jerusalem. Uh, they use this language that it's a Sabbath stay journey away, which is another way of saying it's not very far. It's only a few minutes. And to recap on last week's passage, uh, remember that they had just enjoyed the Passover feast. And the Passover feast was the traditional Historical celebration of what God had done for Israel in history. That God had liberated Israel from the oppression of slavery in Egypt. Uh, It was meant to be a feast of celebration for Jesus and the apostles, which it was. That is until the second cup where Jesus broke the bread and then he broke the news to the 12 disciples that one of them is going to betray him. One of you guys. It's going to betray me, and I'm going to die because of you, and the celebratory mood, like one minute they were celebrating, clapping, singing, and now the mood has become very grim, and then they conclude the Passover feast, Judas is gone to betray Jesus, and whilst the mood is still grim, Jesus leads the remaining eleven apostles to the Mount of Olives. It's really, really. Depressing. 11 of them. They know Jesus has been betrayed. And if that wasn't bad enough, Jesus tells them that not only is one of you going to betray me, but this was prophesied from the Old Testament. Verses 28 to 29, He says, You will all fall away, for it is written. From the Old Testament, it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. It is written. In other words, Jesus is saying, despite all your bravado, no matter what you say, no matter what you feel, it is written. You're going to run away like cowards. Imagine being told from the Old Testament, it's been prophesied and preordained by God. You're going to run away like a bunch of cowards. Jesus is saying that this isn't my opinion. This isn't my prediction. This was prophesied and set in stone from the Old Testament. Zechariah promised that you're going to be cowards and you're going to abandon me. It's God's plan for me to die and it's God's plan for you to run away. But don't worry because I'm going to rise again. And Jesus says, I'm not only going to rise again, I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee, which is where Jesus' ministry began. Now, bear in mind that in their minds, the apostles still don't understand uh, the entirety of what Jesus' mission is all about. I've said this so many times. They still think that Jesus is a military messiah, like he's he's come to be a, a warrior king, the new Julius Caesar, or Alexander the Great, to establish a new physical empire. And so for the apostles in their mind, they're still hopeful that if Jesus becomes the new Caesar, the new Genghis Khan, I'm going to be his right hand man. I'm going to be the second or third in charge. I'm going to be the faithful, brave one that Jesus can depend on, always reliable. This is their mindset. And so Peter says to Jesus, when Jesus says, you know, it's been written, Peter says, even though they all fall away, I won't. I will not. And I remember reading this verse, this, this response from Peter, thinking, what a scumbag. Like, way to throw your friends under the bus. Like, they're all going to fall away, Jesus, not me. But I, I don't know about these guys. I know you trained them. I know you handpicked them. They're going to fall away. Yeah, Old Testament Zechariah spoke about, What? what not me. I'm going to die for you. I don't know about them, Jesus. You you can question their integrity. You can question their courage, not me. And Peter is given a grim reality check by Jesus. (laughs) He's like, yes, you. No, you, no, 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 you, especially you. Because you know what you're going to do? Like you're you're putting down the other 11. What you're going to do is that this very night before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Like, I know you just threw your friends under the bus and you've elevated yourself because you want to be my right-hand man. You want to be the guy that's like, under am the dependable guy. Guess what? Less than 24 hours, you're going to deny. You're not just going to run away. You're going to deny even knowing me. You're going to run away like a coward. And despite all the brave words you've spoken, despite you throwing your friends under the bus, you're the one that's actually going to verbally deny me three times And this doesn't sit right with Peter because he doubles down and he says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And the passage says that the remaining apostles, the ones that Peter just threw under the bus, they all said the same thing. Peter says, I will die for you. And the other apostles, like they're not angry at Peter for some reason, but they're like, yeah, we're exactly the same as Peter. What he said. And obviously we know how this pans out. If you've read through the Gospels or if you've walked with Jesus for any period of time, you know how this pans out. Um, it's always a safe bet to assume that what Jesus says is going to come to pass. Um, and Peter and the other apostles, you know, like I, I studied this passage so many times and I think genuinely that what Peter and the apostles said, that we're not going to abandon you. We're willing to die for you. I genuinely believe in that moment they 100% believe that. I think they meant every word, I will die for you. And I think Jesus at that moment knew that in that moment they 100% meant it. And as I exegeted this passage and studied it, I think, despite knowing that the apostles were genuine in this declaration, I think Jesus was deliberate in allowing them to make that declaration, to verbally declare their conviction that they're willing to die for him, to pledge their allegiance to Jesus. I think Jesus allowed them to say this because he wanted them to see later on how fickle the human heart is you feel one thing one minute, something else the next. The human heart really is flimsy. That even our strongest of convictions, no matter how we feel in that moment, are really at the mercy of our greatest fears. And so having gone for a stroll in the mountains in the evening, they get to a garden called Gethsemane. And Gethsemane literally means oil press, like an, like you squeeze oil And given that they're on the Mount of Olives, it's no secret what kind of oil uh, they're referring to. But as they arrive at the entrance, Jesus does something interesting. Because remember, they're with 11 apostles. Judas is gone, and Jesus turns to the 11 and says, sit here while I pray. You guys stay here at the entrance. I'm going up to pray. But he doesn't leave them all there. He takes three with him, But to do a bit of math, maths, 11 apostles takes three, so there's eight remaining. And the three that he chooses are Peter, James, and John. These are the three that Jesus says, I want you to personally accompany me as I go to pray. And it seems like within the inner circle of the 12 apostles, if the 12 apostles was the inner circle, it seems like there was like an inner inner circle within the 12, because Peter, James, and John are chosen a few times. Um, If you remember earlier on in our series in Mark, the transfiguration, where Jesus' divine identity is slightly unveiled momentarily. The three apostles that were chosen to witness that were who? Peter, James, and John. If you read in Luke's gospel, the raising of Jairus' daughter, there's three apostles that get to witness that. Peter, James, and John. And in today's passage, as Jesus prays to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, again, Peter, James, and John. And remember as I was studying this, I was like, why these three? Why play favoritism? Like you'd think of all people, Jesus would be the guy that wouldn't play favorites amongst his apostles. Why did Jesus pick these three what was the purpose of all of this? Was it because Jesus thought that these guys are like, you know, th- these are future leaders? They've demo, over the three years I've observed them and they've demonstrated remarkable leadership qualities. These are the guys that are the most, most faithful, most reliable. Is that why? I don't think so. At least not in my opinion. And I'll share why li- later. Um, I think. Jesus chose these three out of the remaining eleven, not because they were great, but because they needed to be broken the most. Because it's no secret that Peter was known for being brash. He was a bit of a hothead, shot off at the mouth very quickly. He was one of those guys that, you know, spoke before he thought. And for James and John, who remembers their nickname? The sons of thunder. You don't get a nickname like the sons of thunder for being that gentle, passive, quiet guy that listens to what everyone says. You get called the sons of thunder because you're loud, obnoxious, and you're, you're arrogant. And so Jesus takes these three, three of the most obnoxious, loud mouthed buffoons out of the apostles, and he takes them into the garden. He says you're going to watch me pray. And as they enter up, you know, go up into the garden, it says that Jesus became greatly distressed and troubled. So much so that he turns and he says to Peter, James and John, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. If I were to paraphrase that, Jesus is saying to them, I am so racked with fear, anxiety, and sorrow, I physically feel like I'm gonna die. I physically feel like I'm on the verge of death. Now, I don't know if it's medically possible to die physically from sorrow. Uh, I know being depressed has a lot of uh, impacts in terms of symptoms. I don't know if it has the capacity like I've never I worked. I've worked in life insurance for 15 years. And I've dealt with a lot of death claims. Never have I seen a death certificate that said cause of death, sorrow. Um, I, don't, I don't know if it's possible. But what Jesus is trying to convey is that the amount of sorrow that he was experiencing was soul crushing. And if we collage the details of Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel, because they all record this we get to see a picture of how this plays out. Because Jesus is so consumed with soul-crushing sorrow that as he moves forward into the Garden of Gethsemane, if we collage the details, we know that his sorrow causes him to fall on his knees and then onto his face. He's lying on the ground, prostrate in prayer. And the details show us that as he was lying down, he was writhing physically in agony. It must have been a bizarre sight. I've seen people pray different ways. I've never seen anyone roll around on the, on the ground in physical pain crying out to God. The pain and the emotional anguish must have been so soul-crushingly intense That Luke's gospel says that God, the Father, had to send an angel from heaven to strengthen Jesus, to strengthen and to sustain him. And then Luke's gospel gives us details that the agony was so great that Jesus' sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, this is interesting. Because when people read this particular detail that Jesus sweated like great drops of blood, um, they... They point to a particular medical condition called hematidrosis. Uh, And hematidrosis, what it is, is that you experience so much emotional and physical anguish that your body starts sweating blood. Uh, it's It's an actual thing. And they make the link to what Luke says and says, ah, this must have been what happened to Jesus, that he was under so much pressure that his sweat started to turn to blood. Uh, Other people read it more naturally, um, and they say it's symbolic, because Luke writes it like a simile. Um, He says that he sweated like as if it was drops of blood. Um, They say that Jesus, the sweat wasn't actual blood coming out. It's just like a a simile or a metaphor to say that he was just sweating profusely. I sweat a lot. Um, But that's what they were saying. What do I think? Was it actual blood or was it just a metaphor? Uh, I don't think it matters, to be honest. I think the point that they're trying to convey was that Jesus was under immense pain. The focus was that Jesus was in distress. But the question is, what was causing this distress? What was he praying? Verses 35 to 36 says that Jesus was praying if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. That's what Jesus was praying. He was praying that the hour might pass from him, and this cup, this cup that God would make him drink, he was asking for this cup to also pass from him there's another way, let there be another way. But what was this cup? What what did this cup represent? And that's important to know, to really understand what's going on here. Because I want to make it clear to full life, Jesus was not praying because he he was going to be nailed to a cross. That's not what he was afraid of. There have been countless saints within the church that have died even more gruesome and horrendous deaths. If you read through church history and look at the way followers of Christ have been martyred throughout the ages, there are people that have died horrendous, like crucified and burnt. The Emperor Nero in the early church used to take Christians. And to light up his garden, because there was no electricity back then, he would tie them to, la- like, to poles in his garden, cover them in oil, and set them on fire to light up his garden at night. And these people went singing hymns to their death, unafraid. And I would declare to you that what Jesus is afraid of, the reason he's writhing in agony, it's not, it's not a physical nailing to the cross but what that cup represented. And I'm going to share with you what that cup represented because the Old Testament speaks to this. When the Old Testament talks about a cup, it is a metaphor for two things. Number one, the cup represents the sin and wickedness of humanity. In the context of the gospel, we know that the cup is referring to the sin and wickedness of God's people. And what takes place through the gospel is that the second person of the Trinity, the Christ, when that hour would come, he would symbolically drink down our sin and our wickedness and he would be judged and crushed like as if he committed it himself. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. The second thing that the cup represented was that it represented the wrath of God against sin. In becoming sin on our behalf, Christ would then become the object of God's wrath because of sin. Paul says in Galatians 3.13, all of humanity has the wrath of God upon them because of sin, but salvation and the power of the cross is effectual to those who have Faith in Christ. This is why John, in John chapter three, John chapter three is a very famous chapter because of three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believeth in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the most celebrated passage in Scripture, isn't it? But then, if you read through to the end of that chapter, it says in verse thirty six, "Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son." shall not see life, but the wrath of God, what? Remains on him. So essentially what Jesus was praying for was he was asking the Father, if there is another way to save your people, your elect, now would probably be a good time to tell me. If there is any other way to save Jay, to save his wife June, If there is any other way to save them from their sins and from the wrath to come, other than to drink down this cup of sin and wrath, now would be a good time. But the next part's important. Jesus prays this and says, Yet not what I will, but what you will. In other words, despite the anguish and pain Despite writhing in agony on the ground before Peter, James, and John, praying in desperation, Jesus never for once hesitates in submitting to the will of God. Not once. And we see this throughout his entire three-year ministry, that Jesus, no matter what the circumstance, is always about the will of God. John 4.34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And to accomplish his work john six thirty eight for I have come down from from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is always about the will of God, even as the hour drew closer, and his agony increased. Luke's Gospel tells us that Jesus prayed even more fervently, even more violently, more passionately. Jesus prayed, writhing in agony, if it would be possible that this hour would pass from him. And what we notice as he prays this, is that a few times he gets up after writhing on the ground and he goes to check up on Peter, James and John. Are these guys praying with me? What are they doing? Sleeping. See, a few of you guys... Emulating Peter, James, and John right now. But they're, they're sleeping. It says he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, like the guy that said the 11, the one that threw all of his mates under the bus, he says, Simon, Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? One hour. <laughs> one hour is all I asked of you. Could you not watch one hour? And he says to Peter, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then Jesus went away again and prayed, and then came back and found them doing the same thing, says the same thing, and each time he woke them up, says that they didn't know how to answer him. They were embarrassed. But here's the interesting ending to this passage. Because remember, what has Jesus been praying up until now? Verse 35, he's been praying if this hour could pass from him. That's what he's been asking for. This hour that's going to come, where I'm going to have to drink down the cup. Father, This if this hour can pass from me, if there is any other way for this hour to pass from me, please let me know. And I say this is interesting because of what he says in verses 41 to 42. When he comes and finds his apostles, Peter, James, and John sleeping a third time. He says, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. Jesus just prayed if the hour could pass. arrived in agony for hours. And then suddenly he recognizes the answer to his prayer. The answer from the Father to the question, Is it possible if this hour could pass from me? Jesus recognized the answer from heaven is a resounding no. Why? Because the Father was silent. And the silence from heaven was essentially the Father saying to the Son, There is no other way. And with that response, one minute he's writhing around in agony on the ground, the next minute, he dusts himself up, says to Peter, James, and John, the hours now come. I got my answer from heaven. There is no other way. And that's how today's passage ends. It's intense, isn't it? What can we learn from Jesus, Jesus writhing on the ground in agony, praying before the Father? Um, and instead of an application or an observation, Uh, I wanted to ask a question that I'm hoping we can flesh out. And the question is, why do you think Jesus felt it necessary for Peter, James, and John to observe all this? Why do you think it was necessary that Jesus took Peter, James, and John to witness something that was, if you think about it, really bizarre? I've never seen anyone roll on the ground in physical pain one minute, and then dust themselves up. All right, let's go. Why was it so important that Jesus made them witness this? And why, out of the apostles, were these three chosen? Because for three years, the apostles witnessed Jesus conduct ministry, preach, cast out demons, perform miracles, do countless wonders with unwavering confidence and conviction. They had no doubt that Jesus was com- a confident guy. You would be if you were God. It would have mean would have been troubling to suddenly see this same guy who was like just the epitome of unwavering conviction suddenly writhe on the ground in agony, praying, begging. The Father. Now, like I said earlier, I don't think they were chosen because of anything great about them. I don't think Jesus looked at them and said, These guys, future leaders. I don't think he saw them and thought, These are alpha males that I need to get my church up and running. If anything, as we've done our study on Mark's gospel, we saw that Peter, James, and John were real hotheads shot off at the mouth without thinking. These were the three knuckleheads that said they were were willing to die for Jesus no matter what. Even though Jesus knew within 24 hours, not even 24, not even 12 hours, that these guys would be running for their lives. I believe Jesus picked them to watch him pray, like I said earlier, because Jesus believed these three needed to be broken the most they were loud, arrogant, obnoxious. They just declared to Christ that they were willing to die for him. And by saying I'm willing to die for you is implying that I'm willing to physically fight for you, which we see Peter do in the very next passage. I will physically fight for you, I will kill for you, and I will die in the process if I have to. But what Jesus wanted to show them in Gethsemane was that the battle for God's kingdom is not fought with a sword or with physical violence. Our battle is fought on our knees in prayer. The kingdom of God isn't established through men establishing their physical dominance, giving a physical show of strength and being bold and loud with our words. But as Christ stated repeatedly, It's established by a generation of God's people recognizing that our food must be to do the will of God. The kingdom is established through our submission and obedience to the will of God. And the way we do that is through prayer. Why? Because we're not hardwired to conform to the will of God. Our default nature as descendants of Adam, is to be of the flesh, to do anything but the will of God. It takes the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, a supernatural event, to break us and bring us to be followers of God. And prayer is the means that Jesus has chosen for us in our sanctification process to be conformed day by day, to be a follower of Christ that is living and ever conforming. To the will of God. I don't know what your prayer life is like. It might be non-existent. But I will say that prayer, secret prayer, let me, let me, let me specify. Secret prayer is probably one of the most humbling processes for any Christian. Because there is no pretense with secret prayer. Can't put on a show with secret prayer when you lock yourself away in your room and you get alone with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is no sugarcoating. There is no hiding. Your soul is presented bare before God. The Holy Spirit reveals to you what you need to repent of, what you need to purge, what you need to change. And it's God's God's painful process that will sometimes leave you emotionally and spiritually writhing in agony to conform you and break you to adapt to his will. It's almost a paradox, isn't it? You're being strengthened by being broken. But that's what we see in Gethsemane. This amazing battle that Christ waged on his knees and on his face in prayer. It was the model for all of God's people for all time. If we're not waging our war in prayer, then we're not fighting at all. And so, my encouragement to you guys is to have a reflection of Mark 14. Have a read of the other Gospels and the accounts of what they say took place on that evening in Gethsemane. As Christ, the perfect God man, Praise to the Father in the darkest of hours to be broken so that he could ultimately be strengthened to face what was to come. This wasn't just something that Christ did. It was emulating something for God's people to do for all time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the gospel writers in recording their respective details of what happened in Gethsemane. There is a spiritual war that exists in this fallen world. And the war, the battle that we are called to fight in, is not one that's won by physical strength or bold words, but it's a, a battle that's fought on our knees in prayer. No one prayed more than the Christ. And so, Lord, I pray for our brothers and sisters of FLM and including myself that we would look to the prayer life of Christ, especially the secret prayer life of Christ, and understand that it is something we are called to emulate. Because it's the only way we'll ever taste of victory in this spiritual war that we've been called to fight in. So Lord, I pray for all of us. If we do need to repent, Lord, let us repent. And make time for sacred prayer. Make time for us to be able to get alone with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To be ever conformed to discern the will of God. And be obedient to the will of God. So that we can rejoice in the fulfillment and establishment of your kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.